Hello, everybody. Uh, how appropriate that we're meeting in a place called Elite Warrior Training. Uh, some warriors fight on a physical battlefield uh, with violence. Some warriors uh, fight on TV with obstacles uh, like that. Uh, but we train as uh, spiritual warriors. Uh, we train for a battle that is not against flesh and blood, but against uh, the powers of evil. Uh, and we fight with God on our side. We fight uh, as uh, soldiers who have already won. So here we are in training for that uh, elite warrior training, fighting against the different types of obstacles. We already heard the text of Micah 4, 6-13. I'm going to read it again for us. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain, that pain has seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord given to a people in distress. So for just a moment, uh, I'd like to consider uh, the distress that we know. Uh, because it's, it's uh, the way that we'll be able to relate uh, a little bit to their plight. So um, what are some things that are uh, either distressing you now or that you know distress people now in general? Yes, that's the obvious one, the pandemic. Lack of community, being able to get together with people. Yeah, lack of community. Family conflict. Family conflict, yeah. Politics. Politics. Sorry? Someone say something in the back. People taking advantage of other people. People taking advantage of other people. Finances. 
finances. Okay, yeah, so you have named a bunch of distresses. Some of them are personal, uh, some of them are societal. Uh, but I just wanted to do that little exercise to uh, kind of get you thinking in that light. Uh, we come praising God, but we also come as people who uh, face trouble daily. Scripture says that each day has enough trouble of its own. So then we come to this prophecy. It's actually three prophecies uh, that are in this text today, uh, possibly given at the same time, but we couldn't know. Uh, they're here together uh, for us as one. Uh, and it begins, in that day. In that day. Uh, that's actually very similar to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Uh, and I think that we can take that in that day to refer to that same time uh, that uh, y'all heard the sermon uh, last week. Uh, in that day is the same time uh, that this great uh, day of, of uh, peaceful living uh, in the new Jerusalem with God uh, reigning and judging over them. Uh, that's, the, that's the day that's coming, the day that this refers to. And he says, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who have, whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make a remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. It's a prophecy of hope. And moreover, it's a prophecy of a king. You see that the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time and forevermore. Uh, if you take your finger uh, and stick it in that passage uh, and then go turn over briefly to 1 Samuel 8. I don't have the page number for you, but uh, I'll give you some time to get there in 1 Samuel 8. First Samuel eight seven. Uh, actually, so First Samuel eight is the very first time that the Israelites, the people who this prophecy was given to, it's the very first time that these people asked for a human king to reign over them. Uh, and when they did, uh, the the prophet uh, of whom they asked the king uh, was distressed, and he went to God, and God said uh, in verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's the situation uh, at that time and following in Israel from there, that they had rejected God from being king over them. Uh, and so in a way, uh, from that time forward, uh, there's, a, there's a rift a rift that exists between the people of God and God. Well, God is still with them. He's still sovereign over them. Uh, but he rules them only through a human king. Uh, this prophecy, or the, uh, They asked for a king about 300 years uh, before this prophecy was given. Uh, so it's been 300 years since God directly ruled over this people. Uh, and there have been some good kings... Uh, David being the chief among them, uh, and Hezekiah being a good king, who's probably the king uh, during which this prophecy was given. 
Uh, but there's also been some bad kings and some terrible kings. Uh, and the way a king is judged is whether they follow God and whether they uh, help the people to follow God. And so there have been some some good kings and some terrible kings. Uh, but this whole time, uh, awaiting for a time when, when God will rule over them again. And so here in that day, there will be a king again. Uh, but listen, this is not some... Uh, it's not pictured as some spiritual being on a heavenly throne. Uh, the next verse says a little bit more. It says, And you, O tower of the flock. Uh, so the flock here is uh, the people of Israel, uh, or perhaps the, uh, the future exiles. Uh, and the tower, though, is like a watchtower that you set uh, over your, your uh, field of sheep uh, so that you can climb up and watch for danger. Uh, and so Jerusalem is this tower. Uh, in the same way, I'm going to uh, clarify, daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem, uh, those are both uh, titles for the same thing, the same thing as tower of the flock. This is all referring to Jerusalem. Uh, Zion as like a po- poetic name for uh, Jerusalem throughout prophecy and poetry in the Bible. Uh, So, you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion. Ooh, the hill of the daughter of Zion. The hill uh, is actually uh, referring to a specific place. Uh, It's the hill just south of the temple uh, where the king's palace is. Uh, And given this verse, the king's palace is supposed to be empty. Uh, the hill of daughter Zion, to you shall it come. What shall come? The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. The former dominion. This is an interesting prophecy because uh, Hezekiah or some, uh, some king is ruling in Jerusalem right now. Uh, that king that's ruling in Jerusalem is from uh, the line of David, which is uh, fulfilling the promise that God gave David that he would have a descendant uh, on the throne forever. Yet this verse uh, seems to say, seems to speak to a time when there's no king on the throne in Jerusalem. Uh, so even though, uh, even though this prophecy is uh, spoken to a people who have a physical human king, uh, this prophecy uh, looks forward to a time when there is no king and then promises that there will. So it's a little bit uh, layered, uh, but it's uh, still a prophecy of hope. And that's why I want to say, who is this prophecy given to? It's actually uh, five, five lines long to let us know that uh, God will assemble. This prophecy is given to the lame, those who have been driven away, those who are afflicted, uh, those who are lame again, uh, those who were cast off. Uh, this is not uh, how the people who are hearing this prophecy were at this time. Uh, you've heard uh, sermons from Micah 1 to 3. Uh, so they were given to uh, wealthy people in Jerusalem, uh, leaders and rulers who were oppressing other people in Jerusalem, uh, people who are uh, living living a good life. And by good, 
I don't mean moral, but I mean just living the good life, you know. Um, but this prophecy is given to people who have been driven away. This prophecy is given to people who have been uh, afflicted, who are cast off. And notice in verse 6, who is afflicting them? It's those that I have afflicted, that God has afflicted. Uh, so this again is a, a, a prophecy that has not yet come about when it was delivered. Uh, it's for a future time. Uh, but, but God is planning some sort of affliction for this people. And that's where we move on to the second prophecy. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain has seized you like a woman in labor? It begins with now. Uh, that now, many scholars who believe in prophecy believe that this prophecy was given around uh, 701 B.C., uh, which is when uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had taken a huge army uh, just filled with uh, his own people and people of the nations he had already conquered. He had been going around conquering. Uh, he had already conquered uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, and he had conquered many other kingdoms around, and he had brought a huge army right up to the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, and many people, especially because of verse 11, I uh, think that this is when these prophecies were delivered, uh, when they're uh, right on the, the brink of destruction by the most powerful king uh, at the time. Uh, you can actually read about that uh, in two different places. It's in Isaiah 36 to 37 and 2 Kings 18 to 19. Uh, they'll tell about when Sennacherib came up to besiege uh, and assault Jerusalem. And he says, sarcastically, is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? Because if you remember why the people originally asked Samuel for a king 300 years ago, they wanted a king to represent them uh, fighting their battles against the nations who came up against them. And now as they face uh, near certain doom, uh, where's their king? Their king is unable to deliver them. Although if you read other translations, you might see a capital K or a capital C. Is there no capital K king in you? Has your counselor perished? Uh, similar thing. Uh, and this time instead, the king and the counselor refers to God uh, in that inter interpretation. But again, this talks about a people who has uh, abandoned God, uh, who is not uh, with God or fighting with God. Uh, and so they're awaiting uh, this, this uh, rescuer to come to them. And that causes them serious distress, serious pain. I want you to note quickly that that word for counselor is the same word uh, for plan. It may come up later. No spoilers. Uh, but it's the same word for plan. All right. So this uh, this trouble is causing them great pain and distress. 
and brings us to the command in verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. It's a strange command. But I want to pause for a second um, and let you know that God knows suffering. And even though he gives hope, uh, he doesn't expect you necessarily to be cheerful about your suffering. It's okay uh, for you to uh, writhe and groan like a woman in labor, labor when your distress uh, comes to that. When you're, when you're experiencing sufficient pain, uh, express it. The, there's significant tradition in the Bible of people expressing their pain honestly to God. And sometimes it seems really irreverent, uh, but God honors it. And he usually answers, uh, and he always is there for his people. And this is the reason that he commands them to writhe and groan now. It's because they're going to go out from the city. They're going to go out and dwell in the open country. They're going to have to leave the place that is known by them to be the dwelling place of God. Uh, And so even though uh, they appear to have rejected God as king, uh, they still view their place in Jerusalem as some kind of privileged place because that is where God dwells. Uh, But God, according to uh, his covenant promises from Deuteronomy, uh, is going to kick them out of Jerusalem uh, because they haven't followed him. But interestingly, he's not going to kick them out to Assyria, which is the threat at the time. He, this is a remarkable uh, little nugget of prophecy here. Uh, that prophesies that they'll go to Babylon, which kind of, uh, if you if you read that as an ancient Israelite, you might be like, Babylon, those little guys. Because uh, at the time before they before Babylon conquered Assyria, uh, Babylon was not a power. Babylon was uh, the little guy. Uh, out in the east. Uh, But God still names them because God knows everything that is going to happen. Uh, God is sovereign. He causes it to happen. And he's sending them to Babylon to be rescued. Sending them to Babylon to be redeemed from the hand of their enemies. You know, in order to be redeemed, you have to first be a slave. Uh, redeeming is the purchasing of a slave for freedom. Uh, in order to be rescued, you have to be in exile. You know, the Exodus, uh, when the Israelites came out from Egypt, is the defining moment uh, in their whole history. Uh, God told Abraham, here's a little history lesson, biblical history lesson. God told Abraham that his descendants would have to be uh, in Egypt for 400 years before they could come to the promised land. And 400 years later, there they were in slaves and suffering. And with Pharaoh's whole army chasing them, uh, God brought them up to the Red Sea. And with 
the sea at the back and the army at the front all looked lost uh, until God parted the Red Sea and brought Israel through uh, and then brought Pharaoh's army in and closed the sea uh, and destroyed them. But in order for uh, this great redemption to come about, Israel had to suffer for 400 years in Egypt. And let that be uh, known to us as well, that God's redemption comes to us uh, because we're slaves, not because everything's all right. God's rescue comes to us because we're exiles, uh, not because we're right at home. Let me move quickly to the third prophecy, which once again begins with the word now, connecting it to the prophecy before. And it says, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Uh, This verse is why people think that this prophecy was probably given at the time when Sennacherib's armies uh, were surrounding Jerusalem, because many nations are assembled against you. And actually, if you read those accounts in Isaiah 36 and 37 and 2 Kings 18 and 19, uh, you have accounts of uh, Sennacherib sending uh, envoys into Jerusalem trained to speak in Hebrew uh, boastful things, boastful and proud things about how great Assyria was and how they could conquer them. And even when People say, no, no, speak in Aramaic so the people don't hear you. They're like, no, 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 we want to boast so everybody is afraid. And this is, this is a boastful people pictured here in verse 11, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Not let our eyes gaze upon Zion like let's go sightseeing in Jerusalem. This is, this is the eyes of plan making, the eyes that are set on Jerusalem to conquer, defile, and destroy. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. And remember, they asked before, God asked before, has your counselor perished? And that word counselor is the same word as plan. You see Israel trusting in their own strength, in their own plan, is unable to resist the onslaught coming against them. But when God is in charge of the plan, God actually gathers the onslaught together at Jerusalem, but not for the evil of his people. They think that they have gathered, but God has gathered them, it says, as sheaves to the threshing floor. Now, a threshing floor is like after you have harvested the grain, uh, it's all thrown on this uh, floor, threshing floor, uh, and then a big stone wheel with iron spikes is dragged over it uh, by like an ox or something. Uh, to split the grains, to prepare it for the the further stages of harvesting. 
And it's quite a violent process with little hope for the grain. The grain has no say in this. The grain is a little plant uh, as compared to a big stone and iron block uh, that can crush it. And that is how God is treating the enemies of his people. He has gathered them to where it looks like all hope is lost, but because God is sovereign and God has his plan, it's actually hopeless for them. And he allows then Israel, Zion, Jerusalem, to be the thresher. Uh, an iron horn, bronze hoofs, uh, these are just symbols of strength, things that can't be broken. Uh, they can thresh better than the best of them. And you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, the wealth of the Lord to the old earth. So notice, uh, notice that the nations came up to defile Jerusalem, uh, but instead the nations themselves are going to be devoted to God. So instead of defiling God's city, uh, they are purified. And actually this means uh, they shall devote your gain to the Lord. You can actually read your footnote there. Uh, the Hebrew is devote to destruction. It's a word that means uh, destroying everything totally, totally uh, for the sake of giving it over to God. And so, <laughs> God's plan, clearly seen through these three prophecies, is affliction, but then God's rule. Exile, and then redemption, uh, distress, and then rescue. And so the thread running through all of these three prophecies is that God is sovereign over our distress to provide us with hope. God is sovereign over our distress to provide us with hope. Now, interestingly, these prophecies are fulfilled already but only partially. This first prophecy that says that uh, Israel will be afflicted, they were. They were sent out to Babylon in exile, uh, and they were gathered again, brought back. But after that, there was no king, as promised. Again, they were sent out to Babylon, like the second prophecy said, um, and brought back. Uh, it said to redeem you from the hand of your enemies, yet we can see that Israel has continued to face enemies all the way up until the present day. Uh, and again, immediately upon Sennacherib attacking Jerusalem, God, after hearing the prayers of Hezekiah and his people destroyed the entire army uh, with, a, with a plague overnight. And so 
momentarily those nations were destroyed. Uh, but then, like I said, Israel has continued to face threats. And so this isn't, this isn't a prophecy that is fully fulfilled. And that's where we come in. We are, uh, Romans says that we're grafted in to God's people. Uh, Christians who, uh, those who believe in Jesus, we uh, have been graciously allowed to participate in God's redemption, in God's promises. Uh, That also means that we participate in the distress of God's people as well. I can turn quickly to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 13. This is the infamous Hall of Faith passage about uh, some great people in the Old Testament who uh, had great faith in God. And it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And and these preparations are being made for us as well. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to not consider this place your home. It is for now temporary residence. Uh, But if you really love this place over all other places, God will make this your final place. But if you love the heavenly city, God's dwelling place above this place, God will make that your final home. We are Exiles, just as those Israelites were who were sent to Babylon. First uh, Peter calls, uh, addresses his letter to the elect exiles who are scattered in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God knew that his elect people were going to be scattered, uh, and that he's, uh, and that we're not uh, in our final place. Our final place is promised to us in Revelation 21. You can turn there. Revelation 21, this is what John saw in his vision given by Jesus. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place 
of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So for now, we're exiles without a king. For now, we writhe and groan in pain like a woman in labor. For now, we await that final battle while the nations, or as I said before, the, the powers of darkness gather against us. Uh, but God has promised his rescue. Uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent is a word that means coming. And if you're not familiar with the church calendar, this whole time that we call usually the Christmas season uh, in the church calendar is called Advent season. It lasts through Christmas Eve. Uh, and if you uh, take it Sunday by Sunday, Often this first Sunday of Advent is called the, the Week of Hope. And I think that's very appropriate to our passage today uh, because our passage promises us uh, that we will live in distress for a time. Um, but it also promises us that in that distress, uh, we don't have to fear, we don't have to worry, uh, we we can look forward even even if we die. We can look forward to a time when there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That's our hope, and it comes to us through Jesus. There's a song that um, my church in Libertyville has been singing. Uh, since the Easter se- uh, season. It's called Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death. Uh, and it goes, uh, What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. Uh, what is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? And so as we prepare to remember uh, Jesus' death and resurrection uh, through taking communion, uh, I just urge you to be be confident in the promises that God has made. Uh, go face your troubles uh, with God as your king. Uh, he's sovereign over your distress to give you hope. Uh, let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, we trust you Sometimes we writhe and groan. We see political division. We see sickness and death. We see people who do what is right in their own eyes and run away from you. God, we have our own things uh, from day to day that give us trouble. 
And you promised us in this world there will be trouble. Uh, But you have given us a hope in life and in death that our souls belong to you, Jesus. That nothing uh, can take us out of your hand. And that even in trouble and distress, you are working all things for our good, the good of those who love you. God, thank you for our promises. Only help us to trust in them. Only help us to believe that you are who you say you are, and that you are powerful and good to fulfill everything that you've promised us so that we might follow you in our day-to-day lives uh, because we're not home now, but we follow you seeking um, our heavenly country, our heavenly city, uh, when we dwell with you side by side. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.